Africa, investment opportunity, industry updates, Africa Business Radio, towards a profitable Africa. Prosperity of your venture into Africa is our goal. We are committed to the success of every business in Africa. Africa Business Radio, towards a profitable Africa. Tune in to Africa Business Radio on www.africabusinessradio.com. Find us on Facebook, Africa Business Radio, and on Twitter, at Africa Biz Radio. Towards a profitable Africa. Welcome to Africa Now with me, Ade Tsunji Omotola. Welcome everyone to Africa Now, the show that brings you all the trending news and current affairs as well as business updates throughout the continent and the African diaspora. Join in on the conversation on Twitter. We are at Africa Business Radio. Our Facebook page is Africa Business Radio. And please download the app available for Android devices and iOS users. On today's show, we're going to be looking at the critical challenge of costs of healthcare in Africa and joining us in studio to help us unpack these costs with specific emphasis on Africa's two largest economies, being Nigeria and South Africa, is a lady by the name of Dr. Abba Lisa Graham. Dr. Lisa Graham is a medical practitioner of Ghanaian, Swazi, and Jamaican descent based in Johannesburg. Before we do that, we're going to go on a short ad break, and then when we come back, we'll be bringing you news updates from across Africa. Welcome back. You're listening to Africa Now. Before we go to some of Africa's, uh, some of the updates for this week, let's even look at what's going on in Russia. Every day we've been seeing goals scored by, in fact, yesterday was uh, three goals by a gentleman called Lukaku. Lukaku is originally from Congo, but plays for, uh, for Belgium. And he managed to score two goals. And Today, I believe that Senegal will be playing his first ever match against Poland. And it's going to be very interesting because Poland has a guy by the name of Lewandowski, who's a great striker. And, of course, Egypt will go later. And there will still, we still, there's still no guarantees 
that their best player is going to be playing and they're going up against fire in Russia because Russia played the first game and they scored five goals uh, against uh, lowly ranked side Saudi Arabia. But what is interesting, the stats are quite impressive. 32 teams are playing in this competition. So far, they've scored 32 goals. Guys like Ronaldo have scored three. And we see people like Diego Costa and the Russian guy called Shevarev scoring two goals each. Lukaku is two. Um, no African player has scored two goals. In fact, all the African teams in total have scored only one goal. So today we have two countries from Africa playing and we're looking forward to some more goals from the African teams because if they don't win their games, they're going to be leaving by next week. We don't want that to happen. Anyway, let's look at some updates from Africa. Lesotho is among 14 Eastern and Southern African countries that are considering the adoption of the Chinese yuan as a reserve currency to facilitate the repayment of loans being advanced by the Asian economic giant for infrastructural developments. A team of Central Bank of Lesotho, CBL officials, recently joined their Eastern and Southern African counterparts for a meeting on the adoption of the Yuan in Harare, Zimbabwe. The Harare meeting was organized by the Macroeconomic and Financial Management Institute of Eastern and Southern Africa, otherwise known as MEFMI. It's an association which groups together 14 countries, namely Lesotho, Angola, Botswana, Burundi, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, Rwanda, Swaziland, Tanzania, Uganda, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Now, with regards to artificial intelligence, it's been said that Africa will have a big role in future. It will have a big role in Africa's future, rather. Estimates show that there's $1.2 trillion opportunity with AI technology in Africa, which Google is betting on with the launch of its first AI center in Accra, Ghana. Meanwhile, in Ethiopia, a team of researchers in Addis Ababa are investing in machine learning and developing a high-tech workforce. How the international focus on South Africa's white poverty skews Google image searches. With the substantial wealth gap between black and white, some South Africans were frustrated to find only images of white people came up when they googled SWAT camps in South Africa. The search algorithms appear to reflect recent media coverage by international news outlets. In Addis Ababa, the United Emirates pledged a total of three billion U.S. dollars in aid and investments in Ethiopia, as the UAE Crown Prince Prince Sheikh Mohammed Zayed arrived in Addis Ababa for official state visit on Friday. Upon conferring with Ethiopian Prime Minister Dr. Abiy Ahmed, the two countries also agreed to step up ties in different spheres, of which the total amount of aid and investment, 1 billion USD, will be deposited in the National Bank of Ethiopia, targeting at easing foreign exchange shortage and the remaining $2 billion will serve to finance various investments in the country, according to Ahmed Shide, who is the Minister for Ethiopian Government Communication. 
Communications Affairs who attended the talk. Now moving to Zimbabwe, the country wants to transform into a leading innovation hub with China's help. On this new leader, Emerson Mnangagwa, the Southern African nation has pitched itself to global financiers and agencies as a growing investment destination. Tawanda Karombo writes on Aru Arare is now looking to China to help develop smart cities and boost its budding tech ecosystem. And of course, Johannesburg and Cape Town's internet access costs are more than those in New York and Zurich. And the cost of living in South Africa's big cities is among some of the most affordable in the world, given their amenities. But research shows that internet usage in cities like Johannesburg and Cape Town is a lot more expensive than in cities like New York and Zurich. Of course, we all know about what the, the, the campaign data must for. Now, going to cybercrime, it's been said, cybercrime is proving very costly for Africa's businesses. Across Africa, cybercrime threats are increasing with attacks and breaches growing in sophistication by the day. Abdin Latif Daha spoke about how weak security architecture, scarcity of skilled personnel, and lack of awareness are costing billions of dollars to both public and private institutions. Moving over to Angola, a former sub-factory that is now Angola's leading innovation space has been said to have been refurbished into offices, workshops, and maker spaces to boost the creativity of young Angolans. And there's been a design endeavor on how to revive the appeal for locally designed and produced items. And also there's an MEST Africa Summit later this month, which is a Pan-African Tech Conference, which will convene in Cape Town to discuss the latest in tech and startup space in Africa. And also there's a Mandela Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders, which will begin in June until the 2nd of August. And the Signature Obama Exchange Program will kickstart with 1,000 young African leaders undertaking academic coursework, leadership training, and networking opportunities across the United States. Also, in terms of telecom subscriber growth on the continent, there's been a huge growth in terms of subscribers in Africa. And it's been observed that the uh, sub-Saharan African mobile market for many years will be driven by the internet-enabled SIMs. Among them, 3G and 4G subscribers anticipated to jump from 35% of the total mobile subscribers in 2017 to 57% in 2023, even though 3G is projected to remain the principal technology enabling mobile internet access. 4G's share will increase to reach almost 40% of internet mobile SIMs. This shift derives from the infrastructure development combined with a significant drop in mobile data prices that are expected in the upcoming years. Now, going to Zimbabwe's economy, there's been a robust commitment to agro uh, macroeconomic and governance reforms by President Mnangagwa's administration. And it's been said that he has boosted investor and consumer confidence in Zimbabwe. 
according to the World Bank. The World Bank, in a report titled Global Economic Prospects Report for Sub-Saharan Africa, released on June 6, 2018, revised upwards Zimbabwe's GDP growth to 2.7% from the 1.8% it had projected in January. And, of course, in its June report, the World Bank said, renewed government commitments to critical macroeconomic and governance reforms in Angola, South Africa, and Zimbabwe has boosted investor confidence. Now, moving to subscriptions. We talked about subscriptions earlier rising across the world. Now, Nigeria has been ranked the country with the fourth most mobile subscriptions in the entire universe. The first quarter of 2018 saw the addition of 98 million new subscriptions with China, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Bangladesh leading the pack. Nigeria has been ranked fourth among those countries with the ISNAT's addition of mobile subscriptions in the first quarter of 2018. A multinational networking and telecommunications company, Ericsson, revealed this on Friday, June 15, 2018, in its June 2018 Global Mobility Report for the first quarter of the year. And looking at the stats, the first, the leading country in terms of new additions is China, with a net addition during the first quarter of 2018 of a whopping 53 million subscribers, followed by India, which is about a third at 16 million. And of course, Indonesia, which is number three at plus six million. Nigeria, the only African country in this uh, uh, unique stats, is plus three million. And Bangladesh is plus two million. And it's been said that, Ericsson, based on Ericsson Mobility Report, that there's a forecast that there will be 8.9 billion mobile subscriptions by the end of 2023 globally. I'm moving on to a rare, a rare find in Africa. There's a 24-year-old Ugandan software engineer who's just won 25,000 pounds. That's about 500,000 rand thereabout. 25,000 pounds in the Africa Prize for Innovation. The young man's name is Brian Gita. He's the first Ugandan to win the prestigious Africa Prize and the youngest winner to date. Now, Gita, the Africa Prize is actually for engineering innovation founded by the Royal Academy of Engineering in the United Kingdom, which encourages talented sub-Saharan African engineers from all disciplines to develop innovations that address crucial local problems. Brand Gita is a 24-year-old Uganda software engineer in the fourth Africa Prize for Engineering Innovation. Also, Gita and his team developed Matia, Matibabu, a device which tests for malaria without drawing blood. Matibabu, which means medical center in Swahili, is a low-cost, reusable device that clips onto a patient's finger, requiring no specialist expertise to operate. The results are available within one minute on a mobile phone that is linked to the device. At an award ceremony in Nairobi, four finalists from across Sub-Saharan Africa delivered presentations before Africa Prize judges and a live audience voted for the most promising engineering innovation.
and Rebecca Enonchong, Africa Prize judge, said, We're very proud of this year's winner. It's a very perfect, it's a perfect example of how engineering can unlock development, in this case, by improving healthcare. Matibabu is simply a game changer, she said. And apart from Gita, the three runner-ups selected, winning £10,000 each, were Ifediora Ugochuku from Nigeria for iMeter, an intelligent metering system that gives Nigerian users transparency and control over their electricity supply. Colin Saguru, a Zimbabwean working in South Africa for Altmet, who developed a low-cost, environmentally friendly method for recovering met precious metals from car parts, and Michael Asante Afrifa from Ghana for Science Set, a mini science lab that contains specifically developed materials for experiments. Now, Gita commented, we're incredibly honored to win the Africa Prize. It's such a big achievement for us because it means that we can better manage production in order to scale clinical trials and prove ourselves to regulators. The recognition will help us open up partnership opportunities, which is what we need most at the moment. Now, that's all for this week's Africa Updates. Share your thoughts on Twitter. We are at, at Africa Business Radio, at Tunji Omotola. The hashtag, of course, is hashtag Africa Now. So tell us what's happening in your corner of Africa now. Let's go for a break. Prosperity of your venture into Africa is our goal. We are committed to the success of every business in Africa. ABR, towards a profitable Africa. Welcome back. Welcome back to Africa Now. Today we are excited to be in studio with a medical practitioner, a lady by the name of Dr. Abba Lisa Graham. She's a Ghanaian. Dr. Abalisa Graham is a Ghanaian Swazi, also of Jamaican descent, who is based in Johannesburg. Dr. Graham, before we begin to talk to you, let me first examine the situation regarding healthcare. Welcome to Africa. Africa Now. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming to our studio. Before we, we, we start talking about this challenge of healthcare in Africa, let me first read the background for you and our listeners. Firstly, it's it's interesting that we are looking at Africa's two largest economies, which have about 60% of its GDP and 15% of its population. But let's look at the landscape of Africa. Africa is not a healthy continent, they say. On all indicators of health, Africa lags behind the rest of the world and behind poor countries of Southeast and South Asia that were behind Africa when measured on these metrics a few decades ago. 
much of this gap which has widened since the 1980s as a consequence of the HIV AIDS epidemic which has hit Africa harder than any region on earth but much of it as well as a sometimes sluggish and ineffective responses to HIV AIDS can be blamed on other factors. African governments focused on direct payment and continue to do so to a large extent. After most countries started to move more towards facilitating health insurance schemes, widespread and rapacious corruption has meant that large slices of health budgets have gone missing. Infrastructure problems have made it difficult to provide services to many people in more remote areas. Poverty has slowed the emergence of private healthcare initiatives outside of a few cities. Conflicts has directly affected Africans' health through high numbers of death and injuries and indirectly by hampering healthcare provision. All these problems, as well as Africa's sheer size and its position on the globe, most of it is in the tropics where the nastiest germs and parasites flourish have made Africans unhealthier and worse looked after medically than the inhabitants of any other continent on earth. If one looks at the state of Africa's healthcare as a unit in 2012, the picture is still one of a generally poor population subject to diseases that have been eradicated or brought under control on most other continents, neglected by private healthcare providers and underserved, undeserved or underserved rather by governments reliant on irregular help from abroad. In fact, there's a report on the healthcare sector in Africa, which was done by KPMG. It's called the KPMG Healthcare Sectoral Report. That report looks at the current state of the healthcare sector in Africa, identifying the reasons for its underperformance, noting the geographies where the picture is less gloomy, and explaining why those countries perform better. But the whole continent is not blighted, it says. There's success stories here and there. Some countries or cities in which multilateral institutions, governments, private firms or non-governmental organizations, otherwise referred to as NGOs, have come up with ideas or programs that have had a big positive impact on local population. The report also looks at what was done right in those places and estimates how fast the successful ideas are spreading to other communities. Finally, the report also explored some macro-scale trends in Africa and in the world which should be kept in mind when thinking about the future of healthcare in Africa. But critically is that Africans still live on average 14 years less than the average world citizen and 21 years less than the average European. The maternal mortality and the mortality rate for children younger than five are more than double the world average. There are only 2.3 doctors per 1,000 people in Africa, less than one-tenth of the figure in Europe and less than half the figure in Southeast Asia. Africans health and Africa's healthcare is in a dismal state. And not only are the absolute levels of all indicators low, but progress on almost every indicator is slower than in any other region. Maternal mortality in Africa, for instance, decreased 27% over the past two decades, which is certainly a good outcome, but the global figure 
over the same period was 35%, and in South Asia, it was 58%. Mortality in children under 5 is declining by 2.5% a year in Africa, compared to 2.7% worldwide and 5.6% in the European region, which for the World Health Organization includes a number of former Soviet republics. Maternal mortality in Africa is declining at a rate of 1.7% a year against 2% worldwide and 5% in South Asia. So as a consequence, Africa will lag behind the rest of the world on health indicators for many years to come. And it is important to consider those reasons. So, Dr. Graham, we have just reeled out this serious deficit of health in Africa. But before we go into Nigeria and South Africa, let's just first ask you, there was a declaration in 2001 in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. It's an AU stipulation, African Union, that African governments must meet 15% of their expenditure, their budgetary expenditure on health care. But we see that in South Africa, it's closer to 14%. In Nigeria, where it was offered, it's about 3.9%. What is going on there? So... The current global average is actually about 6%. Um, but obviously, as Africans, we want a, a higher um, a higher percentage because of the, the challenges we face on our continent. Um, South Africa, as you said, is sitting at about 8%, Nigeria at 3%. Um, and other countries that are doing quite well in Africa are Liberia and Sierra Leone. Um, they're sitting at about 17 and 18% on their GDP being spent um, on health care, also probably due to the Ebola crisis, so the government have the governments have had to um, spend much more money on health care in those countries. Um, other countries that are doing well are Zimbabwe, Malawi, um, Namibia, Lesotho, and Rwanda. So we're getting there slowly but surely. But most African countries are sort of sitting between the three and ten percent. Um, those countries that are not doing well at all are Angola. Uh, Gabon and Equatorial Guinea. So they're all sitting under 3%. And I think it's due to a variety of factors. So I think African governments uh, need to, first of all, start off with proper policies and legislation. Uh, we need proper regulations when it comes to our healthcare, when it comes to our healthcare providers. Um, there needs to be accountability and transparency, especially with procurement, cause, because as you mentioned Earlier on, you said um, a lot of our healthcare budgets are swindled or they disappear, and this is this is a huge problem for Africa. So money that is supposed to be spent on the population is disappearing into people's pockets. Um, we need to do a lot of infrastructure development, um, possibly through to more through to through more public-private partnerships and investments, um, and then things like reversing the brain drain, reversing medical tourism. Uh, each year, Africa loses about $1 billion um, to medical tourism. So this is Africans who are going overseas, mostly to Asian countries, um, to seek medical treatment. So that's $1 billion leaving our economies, and we need to find a way of just keeping it in. Right. Now, if we look at the economist puts it this way, very, very worrying. It says Africa is a patchwork of mega public spending, heavy reliance on foreign donors, and a large dependence on out-of-pocket contributions and user fees that place the greatest burden on the poorest members of society. Now, let me give you a classic example, which is very current. Nigeria has 
I believe there's a place in Abuja, the presidential palace, presidential address or office called Aso Clinic. I think about 4 billion rand was budgeted in 2016. We've seen that the Nigerian president has been traveling to the UK and most Nigerians cannot afford primary health care. And you talked about medical tourism and about 18,000 Nigerians travel to India just for simple things like cataract and simple things, maybe a knee surgery or hip replacement or whatever. And guess what? What is worrying also is that it's not easy to get a visa to travel out of Nigeria. So they have to fight for the visa, they pay for accommodation, they pay for the air ticket, then they have to pay for the medical. Now, you talked about reversing medical tourism. How do we reverse what cannot be put in reverse? So how do you reverse the doctors at that side? Even the Nigerians, even in South Africa, we see the doctors travel out. When they get their qualifications here, they want to go to Qatar, where they'll be paid more money, or the UK, even nurses. I see people coming here to recruit nurses. People are excited, but they've taken away people who have... Uh, the country has invested in. How do we reverse this? How do we turn the Aso Clinic to the Loyola Marymount or the uh, Santi Medical? Um, that's a very good question. So, as you said, a lot of African doctors um, and nurses are, are going overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the global estimate is that there are about 65,000 physicians um, who are African-born, who are working in developed countries. And about 70,000 nurses. So this is a huge number. Most of our, our, our medical personnel are actually overseas. Um, and because there are better incentives for them overseas, there's more money, there are better opportunities for research and development. Um, overseas governments seem to be treating um, their medical staff better. Um, and I think the one thing that African governments need to do is that they need to restore our confidence in the healthcare system. So as you said, if our presidents and our politicians are traveling overseas, it means that they themselves don't even trust the systems that they are putting in place. They don't trust the policies that they're putting in place. They don't trust the monitoring systems um, and the procurement systems that they themselves are in charge of. Um, so I think the first thing is to install, instill confidence. The next thing after that is to develop incentives to keep our people um, in Africa. Um, in terms of medical tourism, I think a first step would be uh, to do interregional medical tourism. So if you know that there is a very good eye hospital in Accra, um, the West African countries can have um, programs where you're actually sending patients into those hospitals rather than sending them off to India or Thailand or China or any of um Country, other countries out of Africa. So within that, we can develop our own infrastructure and from that develop each country individually. So mm -hmm. I think regional development is also an option. It's critical. Okay. Now, this, which brings me to this question, Dr. Graham. I know that there are people who have left uh, the UK, who have left South Africa to go set up hospitals in Nigeria and various places. But in the last few days, there's been this, I heard from some friends of mine that the greed in Nigeria actually I don't know what what happened but they said it actually you know the capacity went down by maybe about 50% so, so, 
Sorry? A disruption with a gas pipeline. Okay, there's a disruption. Okay. That's always a major challenge. Now you can't you can't have all this sophisticated medical equipment that are very sensitive that run with electricity twenty four hours. So how do we address because one we have this grid infrastructure problem, we have bad roads. So if somebody for example, a personal story that I, I believe I could share. When my father uh, died in 2006 he was in a place called Victoria Island in his office and he's had a he had a driver for 27 years same guy not educated but anyway so in Victoria Island there's massive traffic at lunchtime I think my father suffered a massive heart attack about three four o'clock so the driver fetched him in that traffic it took him to uh, a radiologist rather than a cardiologist well, because of the traffic demand they make it is laughable now mm. but when you look at the amount of people who die in africa simply because there's gridlock if you call an ambulance in lagos unless it's an air ambulance if it's an emergency so we have challenges in terms of gridlock on those big cities like kishasa nairobi even johannesburg is becoming traffic you know yes. dar es salaam and then you also don't have electricity how do you think that africa's private sector can intervene in this quagmire that affects the ability to be able to have you have the hospitals but how do you get there you call an ambulance they say it's five hundred thousand naira just an ordinary car to come and fetch a patient because you want to stabilize them so how do you think the privacy what what role should the private sector be playing so currently the private sector actually does play a very huge role already in Africa's healthcare sector right. and the estimates are that about half of Africa's healthcare products and services are provided by the private sector. Um, the problem is obviously that's not as well reg regulated as it should be and the private sector already provides um, provides health care through different channels. So right. they're the finances. So this is through medical insurance, through charities and um, NGOs. Um, they are the providers. They can be the providers of health care in terms of hospitals or clinics or even doctors, nurses and paramedics. Mm -hmm. um, also ch charities such as old age homes and uh, mental health care facilities can also be provided by the the private sector, as well as suppliers of medical equipment and drugs. Um, and earlier on, you mentioned uh, um, having this equipment, but there's no electricity or there's no infrastructure. And I think the main problem with Africa is that these products are not adapted to local conditions. Right. So they, uh, our governments might procure a, a certain type of medical equipment that needs to be run on electricity 24-7. If there's a power outage, there may be a problem with that. Um, so we need to actually develop and uh, spend more money on developing um, developing technologies and equipment and infrastructure that is suited to our African climate 
to our African challenges um, with regards to issues such as traffic, perhaps a solution would be to have um, with the public-private partnerships to have more ambulances that are better, well, better equipped so that a patient doesn't necessarily have to be resuscitated in a clinic or a hospital, but they can be in the ambulance. So that ambulance... How does the ambulance get there? That is that is the problem. <laughs> that is the problem. Just, just I think Sergio wants to have a comment yeah, uh, here. Just a quick one. Um, when you mentioned that uh, most of this equipment and um, some other stuff that they use are not were not made to to be adaptable to this environment. I think uh, we worked on a campaign by Samsung a couple of years ago. They call it uh, Made for Africa. And what we've realized is that most of these uh, medical equipment also, they have to specifically make them for the African terrain because uh, it is uh, like a jungle out here. And um, I think uh, that's one of the major problems apart from the infrastructural problem. And uh, I also think that uh, if we're actually going to uh, move forward when it comes to uh, healthcare delivery in Africa, we need to look beyond what is already existing in the global or developed world. Um, what we know Africa for is the fact that we leapfrog on existing technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we would need to do. Look at what we currently available globally. And now we can innovate around those things and just uh, provide specific solutions to cater to African problems specifically. Not so much what we are doing right now, trying to adopt, trying to spend a lot of money, yes. uh, import all of this equipment and eventually just sitting there like a, a white elephant that just almost useless because we have a lot of our clinics like that that um, government has spent a lot of money bringing the, this equipment and you know they're not maintained because they don't know how they're not using them efficiently because uh, it even cost much more to maintain this equipment you know uh, compared to the cost of acquiring um, I mean um, I did a study uh, with uh, UCT uh, about two three years ago and what we've discovered was that um, uh, it will t- cost you about times 10 of the cost of putting a medical facility together to cost times times 10 of the same cost to maintain over the lifespan of that particular facility. Mm -hmm. So imagine most of our government, they don't know that. And when they are doing their budgeting, they actually do not do that. So when they build the massive structure in the middle of nowhere, eventually it will become dilapidated and useless. And that's why we're not making progress. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, look, I think one of the challenges, um, and I'm sure, Dr. Graham, you'll be able to help us to unpack this. When you have, I think, populations can depress uh, facilities. Populations can overstretch facilities. Countries like Nigeria, there's a, I mean, the population is increasing at 3.5%. The GDP is not growing on the same pace. So when the, you know, if you remember Thomas Malthus, the population theories that talked about geometric uh, growth of population, mm-hmm. or arithmetic growth of the economy. economy. Mm-hmm. So what you then also have is I suspect that there is still, a sh- African leaders are still shy of investing in roads, bridges, schools, libraries, hospitals. Now, but also by the same token, it does not help when you then have these facilities and you cannot pay. So if you have a beautiful building with all the best equipment, but you're not ready to pay people wages, good wages, professionals who are going to be doing life-threatening diseases, dealing with life-threatening diseases, some of them are working. I mean, the lady that I shared with you before we came live, uh, the lady who helped, who saved Nigerians from the Mr. Sawyer who came in from Liberia. Ebola. She, yes, Ebola. She died 
Dr. Ameyoshi died. Now, I don't, I don't think they've given her a national award for her bravery because she quarantined this guy. This is a medical professional. Do you, know how, you know how long it takes to become a doctor. So how can African leaders find a way to get more um, investment into the personal and the materials? Because we are personal. We have doctors coming out of our noses. In Africa, it's either you read medicine or you read accountancy or law but they've not been able to keep them and we talked about no electricity you cannot save a life without electricity so how can we how can the african leaders fix that um i think as we said it's healthcare is not uh, it's not an island on its own right. so there are various um sectors of society and um, other 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 issues that need to be addressed. So as you said, electricity, water, sanitation, um, education, um, all of these need to be addressed in order to just improve the general economy um, and 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 keep people in the country. I think monetary in incentives are there, but if the government doesn't have money, money um, then there have to be other incentives. You know, some countries um, will have government-sponsored uh, programs in universities, so the government will sponsor your university education and aside from doing community service they might require you to do up to even six years of of work in a particular um in a particular town or a particular city or region like in south africa yes okay so um that i think has curbed um the immigration of um healthcare work workers um, it is by force, but at the same time, you're helping. It's compulsory. Uh, yes, exactly. Because okay. um, force by be <laughs> seen as yeah. military. Okay. Yeah, um, but at the same time, you're helping people with their university education. So we can start from there. Um, but it's a very difficult question to answer because um, we're always looking for better opportunities. If we can work on developing our technology and our research, um, I know a lot of doctors are looking for places where they can do research and they can write papers. And, you know, there's just not that, that structure in their particular country. So they might decide that I need to go and do my postgraduate studies in the UK or the US because the opportunities for um, research and development are better there. Okay. Um, the head of the World Health Organization is from Ethiopia. And I saw a few months ago when he came to that office, when he won the election, we were very excited. You know, we're seeing more Africans. The head of the African Development Bank is a Nigerian. The head of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, I believe she's probably from Southern Africa, Vera Shongwe. Now, with all these powerful people in key pan-African organizations. Do you think they're in step with the concerns that we have as Africans about healthcare? Are they aware of these challenges or they think that it's the economy first or jobs first? I think they are aware. And I think that uh, to a certain extent, we should give credit where credit is due. So um, as you, you mentioned, um, how far Africa has come in terms of under five mortality um, and various other um, challenges, various other challenges, Africa has actually come very far from the 1990s. Um, the, situ the healthcare situation in Africa was really, really terrible. So they set out these millennium development goals. Most of them we didn't completely reach. 
but we had a lot of progress and this was obviously a lot from a buy-in from governments and international organizations and people in those organizations and we still have a a long way to go but I do think um, people that are in those positions even if it's in the back of their heads I think they do have um, a concern for their countries that they're coming from and a concern that these countries need to be doing better. Well, how do you respond, Dr. Graham, to those who will say, the skeptics amongst us, who will say that, well, you say that Africa, you know, Millennium Development Goals, I think it was 2000, 2015, and at the same time, Africa's GDP rose, the price of oil rose. I mean, China was running with their development, and they were buying a lot of uh, uh, minerals from South Africa and from everywhere. In fact, there was a time, I think, in 2014, when Ghana's GDP rose, it was growing at 14% on an annual basis. So some people will say that, well, if you're making a lot of money, then there should be evidence of that. How do you respond to those people who say that it's not a big deal that Africa, they were able to make progress when there was bounty, there was plenty? Um, That is true. There was a lot of money. Um, I think... As I mentioned before, corruption is a huge factor in Africa, um, but it shouldn't be used as an excuse. We need to hold our uh, our governments and our organizations accountable for the various um, responsibilities that they that they've promised. Um, so that's a tricky question. I think that's a tricky question, but I do think that um, Africa has made a lot of progress. We still have a long way to go, but we must remember that. Uh, we are a continent that is plagued by a lot of catastrophes and crises. You know, we can talk about the HIV-AIDS epidemic, which is slowly getting under control. We can talk about the Ebola crisis. We can talk about malaria. And um, we're doing much better in each of those categories. Um, but it's obviously not where we should be. And we've set out um, with the Sustainable Development Goals to 2030. So there are various goals that we are trying to achieve as as a continent, as a whole. And I think we're getting there. Okay. Now, the, this brings us to Dr. Graham. Thank you for that. This brings us to, uh, you know, sometimes I say that Nigeria is, uh, they talk about Nigeria being the trigger and South Africa being the nozzle, right? And Nigeria and South Africa is about over 250 million people almost if nigeria is 198 million and south africa is 55 that's about 250 million people but we tend to have spats over things that are not helping the citizens of these two countries but let's just take a look because in in the in in the show we want to look at the do a little comparison because nigerians tend to travel a lot for medical i mean not just medical they travel for education, they travel for jobs. But medical tourism in Nigeria has become a real big issue. But let's look at the report. There's a report published last week by a fact-checking website called africacheck.org, which has shown the South African government's health expenditure per capita is 16 times more than what obtains in Nigeria, while current health expenditure, that is government and private, is five times more in the country than Nigeria. And then when they look at 2015 figures that are considered for both countries, it also showed that out-of-pocket expenditure is nine times lower in South Africa than Nigeria. So that is 7.7% of South Africans pay for health care from their pockets, while 70% of Nigerians pay from their pockets. 
which estimates to 126 million Nigerians. And the Fact Check It organization, which relied on the Global Health Expenditure Database for the WHO to make its analysis, said in 2015, the Nigerian government and its private sector spent per person $97 per year, while that of South Africa was $471, which is about five times more. Now, this difference, they say, represents a steady fall from 2010 and 2011, when it was seven times more. And before that, the lowest difference was five times in 2008 and the highest in 2000 at 15 times. Now, in your view, Nigeria is Africa's largest economy. We produce 2.3 million barrels of oil per day. And we have gas reserves in Nigeria. And there's a lot of Nigerians who are on the Forbes rich list. In fact, the richest African is a Nigerian. Why is it that South Africa's uh, health care is so sophisticated and the one in Nigeria is a poor cousin? Um, I think... I think one of the factors we can look at is the buy-in from the government. So as we've compared, we've compared the the percentage of the GDP that is spent on the healthcare, and uh, we said that South Africa was about 8.5 percent, and Nigeria is We're actually up to 13.5 now, and almost 200 billion. And Nigeria is at about 3.6 percent. Yes. Um, so already there's a huge discrepancy in the amount of money. Um, that is spent on the healthcare, and then that will obviously reflect in in how much money is spent on each person. Especially when you look at the fact that Niger- South Africa's budget is about three, four times, almost three, four times Nigeria's budget. So it's, they're spending more. And the budgetary provision is a lot more. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and then when we talk about out-of-pocket out of payments, the issue with out-of-pocket payments is that a lot of people that are paying out-of-pocket are already paying some sort of medical aid or medical insurance um, premium. And it's, it, it's, it goes to say that that premium is actually not covering the full medical needs of that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in 2014, South Africans spent about 27 billion rand um, on out-of-pocket payments. And in a society where you have um, affordable public health care and you have medical aids, there should be no reason why people are spending so much of their own money um, on out-of-pocket payments. And the issue with out-of-pocket payments is that um, we don't want households to be impoverished because of that. So the data is that uh, no person should be spending more than 10% on on of their income uh, on on healthcare. And in Nigeria, it's going up to percentages of about 25%, okay. which is too high. Yes, it is. But I think this is a very good time to uh, take a break. And when we come back, we will look, we'll drill down further at what these budgetary provisions are actually going to. Is it going to uh, children? Is it going to, you know, equipment, salaries, operations? What, what are those budgets? The 3% in Nigeria and the 13% in South Africa. How does this stack up? And where can we, uh, you know, find some, some logic, right? Or rather, you know, how can Nigeria catch up with South Africa, given that Nigeria has a huge population and they don't want people to fall sick and die away? So we'll, we'll take a break and we'll come back to that.
Welcome back to Africa Now. We are talking about cost of health care in Africa. But we also, we've got Dr. Abba Lisa Graham with us, a medical practitioner. And we're also doing comparisons. Now, Dr. Graham, before we, we took a break, we were looking at, you know, drilling down and looking at the South Africa-Nigeria scenario. South Africa has a lot more money that they're putting into healthcare in Nigeria. Not so much. But Nigeria has a huge population. And you're talking about a lot of factors that come into play. But why is it that African countries don't invest more in medical facilities for their people? I think I just want to get a sense of that. Just to, you know, I'm just trying to understand why. I think in terms of medical facilities, I think a lot of African um African countries think that they are investing enough um, but they don't think about the maintenance of those facilities which also takes a huge chunk of the budget so instead of paying for building new hospitals and clinics um, we'd rather you know maintain the existing ones I think also we need to look at a different model and um, there's also talk of mobile health clinics so Mm -hmm. instead of having a stationary um, facility which might not be accessible to a lot of people especially in the rural areas uh, possibly a better solution would be to have mobile clinics that actually move around in the different communities and everyone people will know that on Mondays or on Tuesdays or this um, mobile our clinic will be found here or we can find out where it is if we need any emergency treatment. Okay. Um, so I think we also need to look at how facilities can best serve Africa and perhaps standalone buildings are not the best solution, especially for, because now we're, we're mostly talking about towns, but we need to think about the rural populations um, in Africa, which make up a huge, a huge percentage of our population. Right. But I also noticed that in the past year or so, there's been... Uh in Rwanda, because I know medicine is also important. We don't really talk about medicine, but medicine is a key part of healthcare, right? Yes. So if you're sick, you need medicine. Even if you're diagnosed, you still need medicine yeah. to recuperate or to fix the damage. And I saw that in Rwanda, they're using drones to deliver medicine to some remote parts of Rwanda. Is that something that you think will grow in the rest of the continent? I think definitely. I think. Um with Africa, we are so diverse. Africa is so big that we need to utilize technology um, in order to deliver healthcare. And there are also certain apps. There are apps where you can get a doctor on the line or have a face-to-face conversation with a doctor. Um, so perhaps technology is actually the way to go forward um, for our continent. And also, the, which brings us to the gentleman, Mr. Uh, Brand Gita again, the gentleman who's just come up with this great software, Mati Babu which has a lot to do with uh, you know, malaria without drawing blood. Yes. I think that would be very useful because oh, yes. a lot of people don't even like to have their blood taken, right? That is true. That and is true. also, in fact, interestingly, when I was in Nigeria a few years ago, I was in one hospital, a pedi- pediatric hospital it was for children. But they took me there and there was this guy next door. And he was crying, an, an adult. He had gone to eat some food, Amala. There's this food, lovely food, but... I don't know where he had the MLA. Anyway, they wanted to give him an injection. And this guy needed to get the injection. And he was crying. And I don't, I've never seen such a, a situation before. It was very dramatic. But so people are scared of injections. They're scared of having their bloods taken. And so in essence, what you're saying is that African governments, they have to focus on some low-hanging fruit. They've got to put the infrastructure there, electricity, 
needs to be the they've got to bring they've got to bring back if you like the guys who ran away the professionals who are in london in qatar and all of that and they've got to de they've got to reverse medical tourism so that one billion dollars is going to the uk going to india coming to south africa not that it shouldn't come to south africa because south africa is in africa but they've got to reverse that right yes well how soon do you think if you were the president of say an african country how soon do you think you'll be able to implement this kind of moves uh, i think everything takes time there needs to be a buy-in from the government there needs to be a buy-in from private and also buy-in from the people um so in terms of time i can't give an estimate but okay so yeah. you just get buy-in from people and you buy time and make sure that things yes. are done properly yes. thank you very much dr abalisa graham for coming to africa now we have uh, gained lots of insights from you and we look forward to having you on africa business radio again in the future and from us uh, africa now until we do this again next week we'll keep on being the change that we want to see in every part of our continent this rich and amazing continent from me Adetunji Omotola, it's goodbye i'm Bali Gathlet.